0: Good evening or good afternoon. It's good to see you guys and appreciate you coming out to Theology on the Ground. Why don't we start by reciting a creed? That's what we always do at our Theology on the Ground and and how much more when our focus is on church history, the Reformation. So why don't we pull up uh, the Apostles' Creed? We haven't done that one since our summer series. Um, You might be wondering, why not pull up a creed or a confession from the time of the Reformation? Um, and and, And to that I would say... Like, even the Reformers weren't necessarily trying to do something new, but they were trying to recover. And so we're going we're gonna to recite the Apostles' Creed. As soon as you guys pull it up on your phones, why don't you give me a, 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 a thumbs up, huh? Yeah. It's a Christian Reformed one, is what, is what Mark said. Everyone got it? Cool. Let's do this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Creator
1: of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, of our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit,
0: the born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, because Pilate was crucified, died, and He descended to Third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for coming out to Theology on the Ground this Reformation Sunday. Five one hundred and six years ago the the Reformation took place, and in whatever you know about the Reformation, if you love the gospel, uh, you are happy that the Reformation happened. Uh, but there was a lot at stake, some foundational doctrines uh, for the church were were recovered i 'm not going to take any of dr Wen, wenig 's thunder. Um, but I do want to say um, that that for the church in the West we, we can often be um ah historical. We 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 love the New Testament and we, we know that, that the book of Acts ends after the twenty-eighth chapter, but we're also steeped in, in, in our, our culture of, of expressed Individualism. So, for instance, our church planting network is called Acts 29. In our culture, we can be tempted to think, "Hey, the Book of Acts, and then us," not not realizing that Acts 29 has been going on for two thousand years. That we actually have a heritage, that we're a part of a story that we get to play a role in. Um, but, but a heritage and a story, nonetheless. Um, well, we believe it's, it's extremely naive to say things like, no creed but Christ, no, uh, yeah, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Um, and in fact, it's, it's just an awful creed that we don't find in the Bible. Um, our, our history matters. Our tradition matters. And we can learn from the past, the, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. So enter Scott Wenig, the historian. Dr. Wenig is a Denver native. He went to CSU, then did an MDiv at Denver Seminary, then did a PhD from CU. Yeah. Go Buffs. Go Buffs?
1: No. no. At, least <laughs> at least this year.
0: Between three churches, one of them a church plant, Dr. Wenig has over 30 years of pastoral ministry, so a historian who loves the local church, praise God for that. Um, He's married to Melanie, they have a dog named Jack who is at the center of their family, right? (laughs) Um, He's been on the faculty at Denver Seminary uh, since 1994 and he teaches church history, preaching, Pastoral leadership uh, Dr Winnick has told me he, that he, he's really a pastor who's masquerade who's masqueraded as a, uh, a seminary a seminary professor, um, which was encouraging to me as we often want to separate the pastor from the yeah. theologian, even though what we see in church history is that our greatest theologians were, we're pastors, pastors in the local church. Um, so Dr. Wenig is a history nerd, and we're excited to see some of that um, nerdiness on display this evening. Uh, So welcome to Theology on the Ground, Dr. Wenning. Thanks, Rick. Um, First question, Um, why does it matter that that we understand where we've come from and why we're here, for good and for bad? It's easy to be ah ah-historical. Is that really such
1: a bad thing? Well, let me start by uh, thanking everybody for taking the time to be here. I mean, there, I realize there are a lot of different ways you could spend your Sunday afternoon, not the least of which is at least when I came in at uh, about 3.30, the Broncos were ahead of the Chiefs. So that's uh, semi-miraculous and we might be missing that. Uh, but I want to thank all of you for being here. I mean, Will and Mark and Rick have to be here. I'm paying them, you know, but uh, the rest of you are volunteering your time. So thanks, thanks so much for being here. So the question is, why does it matter that we understand where we're coming from, for good or for bad? Uh, It's easy, as you said, to be ahistorical. Is that really such a bad thing? Let me begin by saying that if you are a Christian, and for the sake of discussion here, we're going to assume everybody in here knows Jesus and is a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are, by definition, a person of history, because you believe deep down to the bottom of your toes, that Jesus was a real historical person who lived in Palestine in the first century AD, who was crucified by the Romans in a broody, brutal, ugly, horrible sort of way, a way that we have a hard time imagining what crucifixion really entailed, that they took his dead body, they wrapped it up, they put it in a tomb, and that three days later... He physically, literally rose from the dead. We believe, as we just recited in the creed, that those are historical facts, that that really, really happened. So, if you're a Christian, by definition, you're a historian. Now, if you're a biblical Christian, and by biblical I mean you include the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and... I want to think that everybody at Redemption Parker is a biblical Christian. What that means is your history as part of the people of God goes back on the low end another 2,000 years before back to the time of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the book of Genesis. Now, you probably know this and I have friends who are all over the spectrum on this issue. What in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is historical? What is more or less, you might say, theologically driven in terms of communicating a bigger picture? Um, I have my own opinions on that. I have a really, really good friend who told me that he doesn't think much of... Genesis 1 through 11 is history, and he's got a PhD in history. I disagree with him. Um, My colleague at Denver Seminary, Rick Hess, who teaches Old Testament, I asked him, I said, okay, Rick, tell me what you think about Adam and Eve in the garden. And Rick Hess is maybe the smartest person I know. He knows eight languages fluently, and I think he knows another eight or nine parts thereof. He's a really smart guy. And he told me, "Go, goes, Scott, if we get in our time machine and we go back, 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 and we end up in this place called the Garden of Eden, there is a literal Adam and there is a literal Eve. In other words, they were real historical people. So that happens to be my position. I'm glad that Rick affirmed it because <laughs> he's really smart. So if, if, if you are a biblical Christian... By definition, you're a historian. Now, having said that, having said that, I think in general, history has a lot of different uh, aspects to it that are really, really valuable. What, one of which is, I would say this, history helps us understand our place in the flow of Christian history in particular, but I think it helps us understand our place in the modern world as well. So let me illustrate this by a current event. We all know what happened, tragically, horribly, three weeks ago on Saturday. Hamas invaded southern Israel. They slaughtered 1,400 people. Well, you can look at that and say, okay, well, that's just kind of an event that just happened here, and it goes back about 10 or 15 or 20 years between all this tension between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But what we have to understand is that In the 20th century, the greatest crime that occurred was the Holocaust in Europe. Six million Jews and another two and a half million to three million Poles and other various minority groups were literally hunted down by the Nazis. They were put in concentration camps and they were just obliterated. Well, what the Jews decided and the United Nations decided at the end of World War II was, excuse me, that would never happen again. So they founded the nation of Israel in 1948. Well, that created a whole series of wars since then between Middle Eastern groups and the Jews. And so that's part of the world that you and I live in now. So, to understand why Hamas attacked Israel, why Israel is now going to go into Gaza, you've got to understand the history of those events, and it takes you clear back into the 20th century. So that's, that's kind of at the big picture, I would say. It helps us find our place in the modern world. Uh, let me make this personal. I think an understanding of history can really help us out personally. And what I mean by that is understanding our own family history, where our parents and our grandparents and maybe even our great-grandparents came from. So, for example, my parents were World War II Depression-era kids. They both lived through the Depression. My dad got drafted into the Army Air Force right at the beginning of World War II. He was stationed in Columbus, Ohio, where they had a gathering with all these young women coming to meet, like a date, a lunch date with all these young soldiers. He got hooked up with my mom, not in the modern sense of hookup, please, okay? But they met, I think it was kind of love at first sight. Not long after that, my dad got shipped to Fort Dix, New Jersey, and then after that, he was sent overseas to Europe, to England, and then to Germany for three and a half years. He came back from the war, My parents got married like three weeks after he returned, and then they eventually made it to Colorado. They started a family, my sister and myself, and we grew up. I won't go into all the dynamics of our family. It had its tangles. It had its dysfunction. But overall, my parents were really good people who I think did a really good job of trying to provide a safe and stable environment for my sister and me. But... As I got older and I started to try to analyze, why did my parents act like they did? Why did my dad try to do things like he did? And as I read more about World War II, and I read more about the depression, and I did a little bit of counseling, I came to the realization that my parents were a product of their environment, their personal history, and our family and my personal history is a product of their history. So history has a lot, a lot of value, just in terms of understanding, just in terms of finding your place, just in terms of understanding your own family history. Um, when it comes to being ahistorical, um, let me make a comment here. By This is my opinion, but I, I think I could generally validate it. I think Americans by nature are somewhat ahistorical. And here's the reason why. If you understand the history of America, From its origins, America was always moving west, always, from day one. America is a forward-looking culture. Americans are forward-looking people. We don't want to take the time to stop and analyze not just what happened today, but what happened last week or last year or five years ago. We don't want to do that because we're an optimistic, hopeful, forward-looking people. That's a good thing about us, but you don't understand that unless you look at our history. So, once again, let me make this concrete. In the last three to four years, we've had a movement, and I'm, I'm not trying to be pejorative here, I'm trying to be descriptive. We've had a movement that goes, you could call it one of two things, either very strong progressivism, or you could put it under the, the label wokeism. Well, that movement has a lot of cultural influence right now in our culture. I would say you can't understand where the people who believe in very progressive thinking and all the implications of that, socially, uh, economically, sexually, all of that, unless you go back to the 1960s and you understand the influence of the counterculture on American society, especially as the counterculture trained all these people who eventually took over the university system in the United States today. Now, you might disagree with me on this, and if you do, that's fine. Um, You can take me and buy me a cup of coffee, or I'll buy you one. Coffee's one of my spiritual gifts, okay? But in my opinion, in our culture today, here are the four main forces. The federal government, the universities, big tech, and the media. Now, I think there are very, very faithful, godly Christians in every one of those areas, and they are toiling away to do their jobs and serve the Lord in those capacities. But those areas of life are very, very, very influential in our culture. They dominate our culture. But you can't understand where they came from unless you go back and you look at the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, and on up to the present. In other words we are, you are, I am, we are socially, culturally products of our history. So, history, last but not least, it's just really fun. It's like intellectual time travel. You know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and and I, I, I just love the original Star Trek. I grew up on that, and then I became a Next Generation fan, you know, all that. Well, I, I used to think Wouldn't it just be great if you could travel to the future? Well, what I discovered, though, in terms of history is you get to travel to the past and you get to meet all kinds of fascinating and frightening people and all kinds of events, good and bad, because it's free. All you have to do is find the right texts and delve into those. I was just talking to Mark right before we got started here, and he was talking about this novel that he just read. Pillars of the Earth. It's the story of the of a building of a cathedral in medieval England. It's a great novel, and you get a feel for what life in medieval England was like, and what it took them three hundred years to build a cathedral. That's how long it took. So you, you get a feel for that. So history's just fun, just fun. That's
0: awesome. That's fascinating. Um, just to look at it with that perspective. Um, Mark told me that that you said in in class. <coughs> One time that you you got your your PhD in history from CU, uh, because if you you study Western civilization, you're basically studying church history. Would you be able to flesh that out for us a bit?
1: Yeah, I'm going to flesh it out. But unlike you, I don't have the gift of sitting, okay? I've got to exercise my gift of standing and moving around a little bit here. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just neurotic by nature, so you'll have to work with me here. Um, Let's start with Christianity in the ancient Near East in the first century. Uh, Christianity spreads very quickly to the East. We don't talk about that much, but it got clear to China by about 800 AD. And it, it was spread throughout what was the ancient Persian Empire. It goes south down into Africa very, very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, In fact, Ethiopia was one of the first Christian areas. It's still Christian today. Uh, But then, as you know this, if you've read the book of Acts, and we're going to come back and talk about the book of Acts, uh, the gospel goes west. It goes through what was then Rome, Rome's Asia Minor, and it goes into Europe, and then it goes west. And the, the gospel goes into what today we call Europe. Well, here's what happened in the first couple of centuries of Christianity. And we're just going to talk about the West. We'll leave the East and the South for another time, another discussion. In the West, the church grows fairly rapidly at different points in the first two and a half centuries. There's a book I'm going to mention, and I made you guys read it. And I still love this book, and I will highly recommend it. You've got to set aside the metrics because his metrics get a little bit dicey. But it's called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark and this book has been really iconoclastic in the study of early Christianity. Uh, Stark was a sociologist who eventually in time became a Christian, but he wanted to ask and answer this question. How was it possible, how was it possible for a tiny group of Jews at the backwater of the, the, the Mediterranean and the Roman Empire to within 300 years take over the Empire? How was that possible? Well, What Stark did was he did all these metrics based on his sociological research that he had done in other areas and then he went and he read all the big guns in the history of Christianity and he answered that question and he did it through a series of scholarly articles and then he put those together in this book called The Rise of Christianity. Well he explains that over the first 300 years the church grew at a fairly rapid rate and there were all kinds of reasons why it grew. Well, by the time you get to the 4th century, you have the Roman Empire and then you have within the Roman Empire almost a mirror image of the Empire in this thing called the church. Christians were everywhere. They had their own infrastructure, they had their own leadership, by that time they had their own buildings, they they had their own finances. They were like a mirror image of the Empire inside the Empire. Well, at the end of the 3rd century, in the beginning of the 4th, there was this Roman Emperor by the name of Diocletian and he hated Christians because he thought they were weakening the empire. So he did this horrible, horrible persecution. There had been persecutions before but this was empire wide and it was really bad. But it failed. It failed. There were too many Christians around to kill them all off. Most historians estimate that by around 300 AD Christians made up about 10% of the Roman Empire, which meant that they were probably somewhere between 6 to 8 million people who were Christians. So you you couldn't kill off all the Christians. Well, Diocletian retires to his country estate in what is now Eastern Europe, and there's a fight for the rule of the empire. Well, eventually, this guy by the name of Constantine becomes emperor. Well, Constantine recognizes what's going on, and I think, based on the best recent historical work, he was probably a Christian. He legitimizes Christianity. So he does that in 311 AD. Well, through the rest of the fourth century, Christians are now legitimate, and then they become favored. The empire falls to the barbarians in the year 410 AD. They surrounded Rome, they conquered it, and I won't go into all the details, but what happened was, The Roman Empire, which had been around a thousand years, is now gone in the West. It's gone. There's one institution that's left standing, that has the manpower, the leadership, the infrastructure, and the resources to kind of meet social, economic, political, and personal needs, human needs, and it's the church. So from about 430 AD up until about 800 AD, so you're talking a number of centuries, Through the monastics, through the rise of the papacy, and through what we call the Augustinian vision, Augustine was the great church father of the late 4th, early 5th century, and he had this vision of the church, that the church was to take over the world. Well, with that vision, the papacy and the monastics went out, and they eventually, over a 350-year period, they Christianized most of what you and I today call Western Europe. Then, in the year 800, you had this Frankish king, and he's very, very important in the history of Christianity, by the name of Charlemagne. And he says, what I want to do is create a genuine Christian society. And so he sends all of his envoys out into what is most of now France- most of Germany, portions of Spain, portions of of Switzerland, even portions of England, and he has them intentionally Christianize all the peasants. And they come up with what they call church courts, and they come up with legislation, and you have to live according to these ways. Well, that's the beginning of what we call in the history of Christianity Christendom. And Christendom lasts in Western Europe from around 800 until probably the middle of the 17th century, 1650. Some people want to tease it out to the French Revolution, 1789. So, when you talk about studying Western civilization, you can't study Western civilization without studying the church, because the church is everywhere. She's everywhere. For like 1,200 years, she is everywhere. Everywhere. Let me make this concrete. My advisor at CU Boulder is Marjorie McIntosh. Marjorie's retired now. She's been retired about, oh, I think she retired about 14, 15 years ago. Uh, Marjorie was one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. She's kind of a combination of Mother Teresa and Hitler. So, um, yeah, I mean, she's great. She's brilliant. She's absolutely a great advisor. She was the best of the best. Marjorie and I got to be really good friends. She's somewhere on the line between agnostic and atheist. I mean, she's a long way from the kingdom of God. And I used to tell her when we would meet on occasion, I'd say, you know, Marjorie, God really, really has used you in my life. And she'd always get really nervous when I would tell her that. And she'd go, well, I guess I'm just glad that, you know, I, I could be a tool in the hand of the Almighty. Let's change the subject, you know, kind of like that. Well, Marjorie did what we call social history, which is studying the history at the local level. She knows more about the social history of late medieval England than anybody on the planet, because she wrote a whole bunch of books on it. Well, what she did in terms of studying social history was she would go to these record houses, and she would study local records, most of which were what we call church court records. In other words, she's studying the social history of late medieval, early modern England. She has to deal with the church because the church was everywhere, and the church was the best record keeper. So if you're going to study Western civilization, at least up to the French Revolution, and I would add even probably into the 19th century, you've got to study church history. Now, I'll take a breath, and then let me transpose to the American scene. America, meaning its European version that started in the 17th century, was intensely Christian those people that you and I call the pilgrims they were puritans they were your ancestors and they left england because they thought that the english church was halfly reformed and really corrupt so they wanted to come to the new world and they they were trying to set up a christian civilization in what we call new england well that was the first impetus of christianity in America and then in the 18th and 19th centuries you had the advent as, as as people moved further and further and further west of revivalism the first great awakening in the 1740s and then the second great awakening from so, about 1790 to about 1810 probably and so what happened was you had Christianity infusing this new civilization called the United States of America it was just infusing it and then eventually Following the Civil War, you had the advent of the public school system. Well, the public school system had a series of values that they were trying to inculcate everybody into because it was a great age of immigration from Eastern Europe and from Asia. And they wanted to enculturate all these new immigrants, and you had to go to public school. Guess what one of the things you read in public school was? You read the Bible. But what they were trying to do was infuse a Judeo-Christian worldview into the American populace. So when you look at the history of Western civilization in Europe and America, the church is everywhere. The church is everywhere. Now, Now li- listen, listen, listen. I'm going I'm to make a comment here, and you might disagree with me, and that's okay. Okay, you can buy lunch and tell me you disagree with me. Okay. Yeah. Even the most... Hard-headed atheist in Douglas County, whoever he or she is, even they recognize the influence of Christianity on Douglas County, and I'll tell you why. Because even here in Parker, you've got a ton of churches here. I mean, we might feel like we're marginalized now, but I'm telling you, we still have mojo, and there's always hope because of churches like Redemption Parker. And what's the church you preached at today? Parker Hills. Parker Hills, yeah, and then Crossroads, and uh, Pepsi, I mean, there are some really, really good churches just in this community. So even, even people who could give a rip about Christianity or might oppose what you and I believe, they know the church is still around. So you can't study American history, you can't study European history, unless you know that Christianity has had a huge, huge influence. That's
0: very helpful but but before we jump into the next question that you have there on
1: your your paper, I
0: just thought as you were talking, there is a huge rise in Christian nationalism and, and that we should we should create a christian society um with 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 your understanding of history like yeah, are we is is that what we as a church should be about like should we be going back to the i don't know good old days is that what we'
1: well uh... Let let me give a little history here, and then I'll answer your question. And if I don't, stop me and say, Scott, you can answer my question. you're good.
0: Our next question, you kind of have already talked
1: about. Okay, okay. Let me talk about the formation of the United States of America. The United States of America, and I love the United States of America. I think it's the best nation state ever invented on planet Earth. But it's a nation state. It was created at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. It didn't exist before that, but they got all these delegates from the 13 states, they came together in Philadelphia, and under the brilliance of James Madison, who was the primary author of the Constitution, they created this new nation. They created this new nation. my wife and I, Melanie, we got to go back to New York City in 2016, and we got to see the musical Hamilton on Broadway. It's a work of genius. It's, it's amazing. And it was just fabulous. I mean, we just had, like, the best time. Well, Lin-Manuel Miranda was on 60 Minutes that same year. And I don't remember which 60 Minutes correspondent was interviewing him, but he had already won two Tonys or something like that. And they said to him, How do you compare your own life to Alexander Hamilton? And he said, well, he said, at my stage of life, I've won two Tonys. When Alexander Hamilton was my age, he helped create a country. (laughs) And I thought, good point, very honest. The United States of America, with the exception of Hamilton and maybe one or two other people, was created by a group of men, and they were men, white men, I might add, just to tell the historical truth, who created a new government, and they were not Christians. They were deists. They probably thought God existed, but they weren't Christians in the sense that you and I are. In other words, they could not read the Apostles' Creed in good faith and sign off on that. Um, let, me, let me talk about George Washington. Washington was a great man, one of the great men of history. Washington was a vestryman in his Anglican church in Williamsburg, Virginia. I sat in his pew. You can go into that church and sit where George Washington used to sit. Washington did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he was vehement about the fact that everybody knew where his body was buried so that no one would create the myth that George Washington had risen from the dead because he thought that Jesus' resurrection was a myth. So, and if you read about Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson was a brilliant man. Very tangled, but brilliant. He didn't believe in the the New Testament. In fact, you can go into the Smithsonian, and you can look at Jefferson's Bible. And what he did was, he cut out all the supernatural parts that he didn't like. He just wanted the ethics of Jesus without the person of Jesus. I'm advocating, these were brilliant men, they were great men, they created a country, they weren't Christians like you and me. But, but, they had a Judeo-Christian worldview, and they wanted Christianity, meaning evangelical, Redemption Parker-type Christianity, to infuse the public square because they knew it created better citizens. And they knew for a democratic republic to exist and endure, you needed good citizens. Now, here's what i like to advocate. America wasn't a Christian nation in terms of its formation. It's a nation-state created by a bunch of deists. But it was heavily influenced by a Christian element in the culture, meaning churches and Christians and preaching and all kinds of what today we would call parachurch ministries, especially in the 19th century. In other words, our civilization... Has been very, very influenced by Christianity. Very influenced. But if you want to now talk about Christian nationalism, number one, you've got to define your terms. And number two, if what you mean by that is we're gonna to try to create a country where Christians run everything, that could never happen. I mean, it just would never happen. That it, I mean, we're so divided now, I mean, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table and confess my sins publicly. I'm still a registered Republican. My party's crazy. We are. We're crazy. We, we're nuts. There's two or three major elements just within our party. And I'm thinking, there's there's no way you could do that. I mean, number two, here's another reason you could never do that. America is too big. Geographically, it's too big. I mean, you've, you've got, you know, the the upper 48, and then you've got Alaska, which is... Feels like thousands of miles away to me. And then you've got Hawaii. How? You couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. Now, having said that, do I want a culture? And by culture, what I mean is the pattern ways people relate, the way we go about life, the things we value. Do I want to live in a society that's influenced by Christianity? You bet. Because all you have to do, and you've seen this a lot more than I have, but all you have to do is go to other places around the world where that doesn't exist, and you realize how easy things spin out of control. And you know who always gets hurt? The people on the margins and women and children. They're the ones who get hurt. So I want to live in a society that's really influenced by a Judeo-Christian ethic where Christianity is very prominent, but I'm not convinced that just putting Christians in office, even though, you know, if I find a good Christian, I'm going to vote for them. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that, that's not our history. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. helpful.
0: Thank you. Um, I'll jump back to the question I was going to ask. Um, why, why is it a mistake? And you could just answer this briefly, but why is it a mistake to jump from the book of Acts to 2023 <laughs> in Parker, Colorado? I mean, shouldn't we just look at the church in Acts uh, as our church history and try to imitate them. I hear all the time, hey, Acts 2, Acts 4, this is how the church would do it. Why can't we do it like that?
1: Well, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, I was writing out things here on my notes because my memory's not as good as it used to be. Um, but one of the things I put is, for one thing, um, they didn't believe in freedom of religion. Th- that concept didn't exist in the ancient world. I mean, so you talk about the church in the book of Acts. Well, you were either a Jew or you were a Christian, and I'll come back and talk about that, or you were a pagan. But everybody was religious and nobody believed in freedom of religion. You had to choose and then live with the consequences. Um, So at that point, we're really different from them. Secondly, and and I'm going to come back because I'm going to try to drive this home later on. Um, When you read the book of Acts, one thing that comes really crystal clear is that they were really, really, really communal in nature. And we're really individualistic. And so once again, I'm going to own this. I'm an American. And sometimes, I'm just going to be really honest with you, I'm a pastor, I'm a seminary professor, I love the Lord, but sometimes I have to ask myself, am I influenced more by my American individualism than by my Christian community? They were really, really communal. We're really individualistic. Um, Thirdly, I would say this, and this gets back to what I've been talking about in terms of American civilization. They were a small minority religious group. They were really small and tiny. We're all over the place. We're all over the place. Yeah, so to, to go from Acts to us. There are just a lot of differences. Now, yeah. let, let, let me go on here and then yeah. you can stop me because I'm gonna get into preaching here. Just so buckle in, I'm gonna go to preaching.
0: Perfect.
1: I wrote down all of that is to say we can learn a great deal from the early church. So let me let me emphasize this. Number one, for them, and you see this in the book of Acts, church was not optional. It was essential. <laughs> it wasn't optional. It was essential. Three. For us, we need to be honest about this. Sometimes it's kind of optional. Number two, they were unbelievably generous. I mean, you read that passage in Acts 4. People were selling lands and houses, bringing the money to Rick and Mark and the elders and sending it at their feet to distribute to anyone as he had need or she had need. They were unbelievably generous. Uh, number three, their evangelistic fervor makes me blush at the lack of mind. And I do care about lost people. But their evangelistic fervor was unbelievable. In May of 2001, I went on this trip with Denver Seminary on the journeys of St. Paul. And one of the most significant parts of that trip was we got in a bus at the, the coastline of Turkey on, the, on you know the Mediterranean there by the ruins of the city of Perga, which is where Paul and Barnabas landed. Well, we took a bus tour for two days up into the interior of Turkey to visit what was Iconium. Lister and Derby have never been excavated. We have a general idea of where they were. And then Pisidian Antioch, which has been excavated, and it's unbelievable. They're like a little mini Roman amphitheater up there. They've excavated the synagogue that Paul and Barnabas went into, and you could stand where Paul and Barnabas stood and preached the gospel. Well, we're up there, and I'm thinking, it took us two days by air-conditioned bus to get up there. (coughs) Paul and Barnabas were willing to walk and ride donkeys up there for one reason and one reason alone. They wanted to tell people about the Messiah. His name was Jesus, He had come. He had died to pay for their sins. He had risen from the dead. He's going to come again, and they need to give their lives to him. And you know, in every one of those cities they went to, and I always joke about this in church history, but it's true. Two things happened. There was a riot, and there was a revival. They got the crud beat out of them in every one of those cities. They started churches in every one of those cities. And then they went back and visited them. So their evangelistic fervor was amazing. And then last but not least, and I don't want to romanticize the early church because they were like us. They were people with issues and problems. But I think one of the things you see in the book of Acts that gives me a lot of hope, gives me hope for me. You see these men and women developing spiritually over time. So let me point out something that I think is really visible, but we don't talk about it much. The first disciples, those 12 guys and the women around them, they were all Jews. If you were a really fervent Orthodox Jew in the first century, you pretty much hated Gentiles. They were just pagans, you wanted to stay away from them lest they make you unclean. Well, you know the the command of Jesus, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, great. In Judea, great. In Samaria, Uh, I don't know about that Jesus. And to the ends of the earth? Mm. Well, that's the Roman Empire for them. That's Paganville. Well, you see this with Peter. And I happen to think Peter's gotten kind of a bad rap a lot of times when we study him. I think Peter was a person of great faith. Great faith. I mean, he calls Jesus God. You know, which would have been like, what? Really? Peter's a racist. He doesn't like Gentiles because they're Gentiles. He's a racist, but you see him make progress, and you see that great vision of God that happens to him in Acts ten, and he realizes, okay, I, I, I've got to overcome this, and he goes to the house of Cornelius because God tells him to. In other words, they were spiritually developing; they were men and women who were growing; they were. Men and women who were spiritually maturing—they weren't perfect. They made mistakes. They had their issues, but you see in the text, and you see in their history, they're developing. That—that gives me hope. I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. You're not done with me yet, because because I have issues that I'm working on. I'm thinking, Lord, yeah, good. You're not done with me yet.
0: Preach it, preach it. (laughs) That is very hopeful. Okay, it is Reformation Sunday. Could you set the scene for the Reformation? Um, Where had the church gone wrong, and what were the reformers trying to accomplish, and were they
1: successful? Yeah, big question. I'll try to make this as clear as I can. Remember what I said. From the time of Charlemagne on, you had a Christian society in Europe, which means that it was church and state were united, and everybody believed in that. Well, by the time you get to the 14th on into the 15th centuries the church starts to unravel. It starts to have a lot of problems. The papacy goes into a whole degenerative cycle. So from the middle of the 15th century on into the early years of the 16th century, the papacy was under the control of the Borgia family. And they made the worst gangsters that you can imagine in American society look very godly. The Borgia Popes were just really, really horrible. So the papacy was in this really, really downward spiral, and everybody knew it. Secondly, the church itself in Latin Western Europe underwent what we might call an inflationary spiral. They were building all these buildings, including St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, but they were building cathedrals and, and nunneries and more monasteries and more parish churches, and all of that was taking money like crazy. And it was the average person who didn't have much money who was helping to pay for that. So people felt like the church was just about finances. And so what the church invented in the late 15th century was a little tool that became hugely financially um, relevant, called indulgences, and that is they would send preachers out and they would promise remission from purgatory, and I'll come back from that, for you or your relatives if you would buy this piece of paper. And so you could buy this indulgence, and the church would make money, and you would get a piece of paper saying, well, your time in purgatory has gone down from hundred and fifty thousand years to 125,000 years, or grandma who's really suffering in purgatory, she won't have to suffer a million years, it'll only be a half million years. Well, it was enormously financially rewarding for the papacy in terms of raking in money and people started to question this and I'll come back and and talk about indulgences. Um, the lower clergy, there were a lot of questions about corruption. Um, were they, do they care about the parishioners? Some did and some didn't. Um, And then there was a a movement, a new intellectual movement that came along in the late 15th century called humanism. And it was Christian humanism. And these were people that were interested. They were really academics. They were, the best way I could make a comparison, they were kind of like the seminary professors of their day. They wanted to sit in their offices and read ancient texts and find out what was going on in the past. Well, they had a big, big influence in terms of, hey, Here's what the church of the Book of Acts looked like. Here's what the early church looked like. Here's what our church looks like. And it's really different, and it doesn't look good. And so they have a big, big influence. And then you set over here in the middle of the 15th century. Gutenberg invented movable type. You had the printing press, and that becomes hugely important in the 16th century. So when you get into the 16th century, there's lots of people in Latin Western Europe who recognize our church is pretty corrupt. The papacy's out of control. They're selling indulgences as, you know, kind of cheap grace. Um, The church just wants our money. There's not good pastoral care. And we need to get back to what the church was like in its early decades. That's where we want to go. So that's the eve of the Reformation. In other words, there was a growing sense of discontent and a growing sense on the part of a lot of different people this thing needs to be reformed. It's just gone off the rails.
0: And then what happened? <laughs>
1: There was a friar by the name of Johann Tetzel, and he was sent by the papacy up into northern Germany to hawk indulgences. In other words, he would come into a local village, and he had this little jingle he used to say, as soon as a coin into my coffer rings, as I give you this indulgence, another soul from Purgatory Springs. And he was very, very effective at hawking indulgences and selling them. He was was a great fundraiser for the papacy. Well, he comes into Saxony which is this area of northern Germany where there's a new university in the middle of Saxony that had just been created about 20 years before that by Prince Frederick who was the elector of Saxony and it was at Wittenberg and there is a professor there and his name is Martin Luther and he's 34 years old and he sees what Tetzel is doing and he thinks, this is ridiculous, this is craziness, look what he's doing. He's giving people cheap grace. This isn't getting anybody out of purgatory. And I have a lot of questions about purgatory to start with. And so what Luther does is he just kind of goes ballistic. And he sits down and he writes out 95 theses. That mostly, but not totally, have to do with the practice of indulgences as to why they're wrong and why this is ungodly and why this isn't how God brings about salvation. And what he does, according to tradition, there's questions about whether or not this really happened, but tradition seems to indicate that it is. He went to the church door at Wittenberg and he nailed those to the church door at Wittenberg and he also gave his 95 theses to some friends who then took them to printing presses and they started to spread them throughout, not just Germany, but all of Western Europe. Well, when Luther nailed those to the door at Wittenberg, it was October 31st, 1517. So, two nights from tonight, it's not Halloween. It's not. It's Reformation Day. Now, if you want to take your kids trick-or-treating, I get it. I love trick-or-treating when I was a kid, but you should have a good meal celebrating Reformation Day and say, now we'll go get you some candy, okay? In other words, This is the advent or the spark that starts the Protestant Reformation. But if you read the theses, Luther, Luther just a lot of them are just common sense. Like he had a lot of questions about purgatory. Purgatory was a Roman Catholic doctrine that was developed in the 7th century by Pope Gregory the Great. And he developed it for pastoral reasons. Here's what he said. You're a really godly person, but you're not perfect. But God's perfect, and heaven is perfect. So before you can get into heaven, what you need to do is become perfect. Well, we need to put you in a place after you die, before you get to heaven, that'll trim off all the sin from you and make you perfect. So he invents this holding tank view, and he goes to certain places in the Bible to support it. He didn't just invent this out of nowhere. He goes to certain places, like 1 Peter chapter 3 and some other places, and he comes up with this doctrine of purgatory. Well, it gains traction for pastoral reasons. It gains traction. So by the late medieval era, the late 15th, early 16th century, purgatory is a big, 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 big thing, but it makes people feel really oppressed and afraid. Not everybody, but a lot of people. So, for example, in the 95 Theses, one of the theses Luther writes is this. He says, if the Pope's really loving if he's really the vicar of Christ, if he's really the descendant of St. Peter, and he really loves God, and he really loves all the people in Europe, why doesn't he just issue what we call a plenary indulgence and free everybody from purgatory? Wouldn't that be the Christian thing to do? Wouldn't that be the loving thing to do? Well, you're looking at that and you're going, yeah, yeah. So... There's a sense of religious oppression, there's the doctrine of purgatory, there's indulgences, there's papal corruption. There are people who feel like all their money's leaving their area to go to build this huge, huge cathedral in Rome for the Pope. Nobody really cares about us. And Luther comes along and he says, enough is enough is enough is enough. And because they took his 95 theses and they they printed them up and they sent them out throughout all of Europe, I mean, within weeks, it creates this huge firestorm, this huge controversy. And so then Luther, is that's the beginning of him being called on the carpet by the papacy to get him to recant. But he does it out of pastoral theological reasons. He thinks a lot of this is just theologically, biblically nuts. People aren't saved by this stuff.
0: So it it starts with the indulgences, but... For us, looking back, I mean, is that all Luther and the reformers
1: recovered? No, that's a great question. So let let me try to be as clear as I can on this. When you look at Luther or Zwingli in Zurich or Calvin in Geneva or Thomas Cranmer in Canterbury in England, um, even what we call the radical reformers like Mano Simons, the Anabaptists, what they all looked at was this. They saw their society had once been Christian, and now it had kind of like repaganized. They thought it was really pretty pagan, and they wanted to re-Christianize it. In other words, they looked at their church, and they thought, we want to reform our church. They weren't trying to break the church apart. They were trying to take the church that they had all grown up in, that they all knew since they were children. And they're thinking, this thing's gone off the rails. Let's reform it. Let's recover it. Let's get it back to the gospel. Let's have proper soteriology, proper ecclesiology, etc., etc. So that's what they were trying to do.
0: That's good. Um, were they successful?
1: No, they were not successful. And in fact, almost all of them went, I mean, Luther dies, I'm trying to think, 1546 or 1547. Um, He lived in in Saxony almost his entire life. Um, Yeah, he was discouraged at the end of his life by the lack of what he thought was proper reform. Um, Calvin basically was very successful in reforming Geneva, but I think he had questions at the end of his life, was this going to last? Cranmer tried to reform the Church of England and was pretty successful until he was martyred by Queen Mary in 1555, um, I I think that they thought they weren't that successful. Now, historically, looking back, we'd say they were very successful, because here we are. We're here tonight. Yeah, October 29, 2023, a little gathering of the saints of Redemption Parker Church, which is a Protestant church in the history, tradition, and practices of the Reformation. So let me add one other thing here. One of the things about the Reformation that came out that was very, very important, and I'm not saying Catholics didn't do this, they did, but in the Reformation, preaching became hugely important. It's hugely important. And in your church, the church I go to, preaching's hugely important. Catholics preach, but not in the same way that Protestants do. And the reason why is because of one of the main solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura. You and I do not think that the Pope is our religious authority. We think the Bible's our authority. Now, here's the downside of that, and I joke about this, but it's true. In the 16th century, as Catholics started to marginalize people trying to reform the church, the reformers. And eventually they got the name Protestants. They were protesting against the church. Catholics began to tell Protestants, if you give everybody a Bible, you're not going to have a thousand different churches. You're going to have 10,000 different churches. They were wrong. If you give everybody a Bible, you're going to have Millions of different churches, and those are just Baptists. And I'm a Baptist, I know. Yeah. They were right about that because what we say is this the Bible's our authority, but you have the ability and the privilege to interpret it. Now, no, no. Having said that, and I joke about that, and there, there's truth in what I said because Protestants like to split and start new churches and everything else. There are things we all agree on as Protestants. So let me, let me give the great solas of the Reformation. Sola fide by faith alone. You and I are saved by faith in Jesus alone. Jesus saves us. He simply wants us to trust him. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He rose from the dead. He comes to us with the good news. I'm giving you eternal life, which starts right now. You just need to trust me by faith. Sola gratia, by grace alone. In other words, There's nothing that you or I could ever do, ever do to earn God's favor or earn his love. God loves us unconditionally. He showed us that in Jesus. He gives us his grace. We simply need to respond to it. Sola gratia. Sola scriptura I talked about. Sola de gloria for the glory of God. God wants you and me to do everything in our lives to glorify him. In other words, Christianity is a full-orbed lifestyle. It's a way of living. It's a way of being. It's a way of serving. And eventually, we get into the kingdom of God, and eventually we'll be transformed, and we will see God in all his glory, and we'll be glorified. We'll have glorified bodies like Jesus. It's going to be awesome. So those are the big solas of the Reformation. Catholics, even today, even Catholics... and. And I have some friends who are Roman Catholics who I'm convinced know the Lord, may know him better than I do. They don't believe the stuff I just told you. They don't believe that. They'll say, well, you know, you're saved by grace through faith, but, you know, you've got to put some effort into it. And I would say we put effort into our sanctification. In other words, we're living out of the fact that Christ has decreed us righteous by his death. And that now he gives us his Holy Spirit, and that yeah we cooperate with his Spirit. Philippians two, twelve and thirteen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. We do that because the Spirit's at work in us, but not because we can earn our salvation. We can't do that.
0: Amen. Yeah, and that's that's why. Um, if we do love the gospel, we are grateful for so, the, the Reformation and yeah. what and what was recovered. Um, so, I, I believe the last time you were at RP, you said that Luther's your favorite theologian. Could you give us your favorite Luther story from the Reformation? <laughs>
1: I know there's some good ones. Uh, well, there's a lot of great Luther stories. Now, <clears throat> here, here's the thing in, in full disclosure, let me try to be as historically accurate as I can. Luther was an unbelievably larger than life individual, he was brilliant. I mean, we throw that word around pretty easily today in 21st century America. Luther's dad, Hans, realized when, when Martin was about six or seven years old, he realized this kid's incredibly intelligent. And he was. So Luther was this great theologian, great thinker. He was an unbelievable writer. Uh, translated the, the New Testament into German. I mean, just he had a turn of the phrase. He had the ability to connect with people both in person and and through his writing. He also was always right. In other words, you couldn't disagree with him. And if you disagreed with him theologically, he would anathematize you. Um, And I'm going to be honest about this. He was notoriously, blatantly, brutally anti-Semitic. I mean, just really, Luther had his downsides, and his downsides were like his upsides. They were really big. Big downsides, huge upsides. Having said that, he He's just amazing. So here's one of my favorite Luther stories. Two years after he posts the 95 Theses, he's called by the papacy to go to this city in Germany called Leipzig to engage in a debate with one of the leading Catholic theologians of the day, Johann Eck. Well, Eck was really brilliant, and Eck was a great debater. So Luther shows up, for the Diet of Leipzig, and there are a bunch of other church, uh, church leaders there, and also secular leaders there, and they're debating things that Luther had posted in his 95 Theses, and some of Luther's theology. Well, one of the things that Luther began to articulate, and he articulates this in his debate with Eck, is the Pope is not the head of the church, Jesus is the head of the church. Well, Eck's really smart, and Eck knows his church history from 100 years before at this council called the Council of Constance, where a early reformer by the name of John Huss had been brought there because he had been proclaiming the same thing. And John Huss said that Christ, not the Pope, is the head of the church. Well, Huss was eventually martyred. They burned him at the stake as a heretic. Well, when Luther starts to say this, the Pope isn't the head of the church, Christ is, Eck steps in and he goes... Well, Brother Martin, you know who you sound exactly like. You sound like John Huss. And Luther goes, I am not a Hussite. Because he knows what happened to Huss. And he knows Huss was a heretic. He says, I'm not a Hussite. Well, they go back and forth. And so finally they break for lunch. Well, Luther goes over to the Leipzig uh, library. And he goes in there. And they have the records of the Council of Constance there. So he's going through those. They're there. And he's reading them. And he's reading Huss's testimony. And he goes, oh no, I do sound just like John Huss. Well, he kind of eventually loses the debate to Eck and they let him go back home and he goes back to Wittenberg. But he realizes at that point, he realizes, I've crossed the Rubicon, you might say, that metaphor of Caesar crossing the Rubicon. I've crossed the ecclesiastical theological Rubicon. I can't go back. And so what he does is at that point, he writes three of his greatest pamphlets on the Babylonian captivity of the church, which was against the Catholic sacerdotal system, the seven sacraments, and he's proclaiming justification by faith alone. This is how you're saved. You're not saved through the sacraments of the church. And then a second um, pamphlet was an address to the nobility of the German nation where he says this, if you're a Christian you're a priest and a son and daughter of God. It's not the clergy over here. It's everybody who knows Jesus. Everybody's a priest. If you're a son and daughter of God and you use Jesus, it's the priest or the believer. And then the last was on the freedom of the Christian man. And he's speaking generically, Christian men and women. He has a statement in there on what we would call calling or vocation. And I'm not going to get it exactly right, but I'll get the gist of it. He said this. He said, the Christian man is the most free person of all. The Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all. Mm -hmm. And I love that. But in his talk on vocation or calling, he said, whether you're changing a diaper, milking a cow, or preaching a sermon, if you're doing it by faith in Jesus... God is pleased. In other words, all of life can be sanctified if we're living by faith in God. Luther really believed that. I mean, he really did believe that you're changing a diaper, but you're doing it in faith to help your child because you love your child. You love Jesus. And God looks down on that and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're living out the gospel by changing a diaper. Or we don't melt cows much in Parker. Well, maybe some people do. Okay. But tomorrow, tomorrow, when you're at your job, can you do that out of faith in Jesus? And Luther would say that's pleasing to God. That's pleasing. to him. So that's no, a, that's, good. that's a favorite Luther story. Yes,
0: and uh, yeah, sweet. He Luther had no secular sacred divide. That's all, right. All yeah. was sacred, all and, the, and I appreciate you bringing up the um, anti-Semitism. I, I think I think in this. Conversation when we talk about Luther, it's so easy to just romanticize. Oh yeah, him. we don't want to do um,
1: that.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I, I remember going through the Holocaust Museum oh. in in Jerusalem and seeing some of his quotes up there, and it was just
1: uh, it's oh, it's frightening. Yeah,
0: um, you're such a good storyteller that I'm going to ask you another question. Uh, could, could you or could you tell the story um, when he cries to? Is it Saint Anne that he cries oh. to? Oh, and. And he becomes the monk, right? Well, yeah. That's all part of that process.
1: Yeah, Luther's father was a very, very successful miner in Saxony. In other words, he was part of what we call the new burger class, which today we would call kind of middle, upper middle class. He was really climbing the socioeconomic ladder in his day and his time. And when they got, when people got to that level, all of a sudden they realized, I've got resources. I want a better life for my children. Like all of us do. We all want our kids to to do even better than we've done. I mean, that's natural if you're a parent and you love your kids. Well, Hans Luther wants Martin to do really well. So he wants him to become a lawyer. And he sends him to law school. So Luther's at law school. And he's on his way back to Saxony on kind of like, you know, holiday. And this huge, huge, violent thunderstorm breaks out. Now, I've never been to that part of Germany But I've seen pictures and film of it. He's walking through the forest. And these forests were really dense. And this storm came up. And it was lightning and thundering. And trees were falling all around him. I mean, and those forests are dark. And there were robbers there. In other words, it's a pretty terrifying place to be going on a normal day, let alone in a thunderstorm. And he's utterly terrified. He's utterly terrified. And he falls to the ground. And he cries out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of lost travelers, or people in trouble. And he says, Saint Anne, if you help me, if you get me out of this, I will become a monk. And he survives the thunderstorm, and two weeks later drops out of law school and enters a monastery. And Hans Luther was not happy, because his, his, lead, his son, the lawyer, was now a monk? you got to be kidding me. And eventually, I think it's three or four months later, Luther's going to... I think it was about a year later, Luther's going to give his first communion, his first Eucharist in Mass. And and Hans and uh, his and Luther's mother come. And apparently, I went okay, but Hans still wasn't too happy with him. Because now he was in the church. He wasn't going to become the great, affluent, well-known legal mind.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a story. I love that. It never gets old. Um, okay, so... Why does the Reformation still matter? It's, it's 2023. Why does, why does the Reformation still matter for us today?
1: Well, once again, I'm going to be really honest. I didn't grow up in church world. I became a Christian when I was a freshman in college. And I got involved in this conservative Baptist church, which that's part of the Reformation. Um, Protestantism until the 20th century was always a much, much, much smaller element of global Christianity. Um, The Orthodox Church in the East was still big. Roman Catholicism is global. It has been since the 16th century. Protestantism was never very big, really, numerically, until the 20th century. And then with the rise of Pentecostalism, it's kind of taken over. But I would say the Reformation still matters for these reasons. Number one... I have a lot of respect for the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of respect for it. I'm never, ever, ever, ever in this life gonna become a Roman Catholic. I have friends who have left Protestantism to become Roman Catholics in the last few years. It shocks me. It shocks me because I'm thinking, okay, we have problems in our movement. I know that. I get that. But you're signing on to papal authority and infallibility? You're signing on to transubstantiation? You're signing on to purgatory? You're signing on to the veneration of Mary? I have some friends who are missionaries in Spain, and when I was there in 1996, we went to this cathedral in Toledo, and we go into the cathedral at noon, and they had this huge procession for the Virgin. Huge. Hundreds of people coming in, following the virgin. She dominates everything and Jesus is hes kind of over here in the corner. And my friend who's the missionary says this, when I see this, this is why I know we came to Spain. Because he's a Protestant. He wants these people to come to the gospel. So having said all of that, the Reformation broke open once again the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news that you and I Men, women, and children can come to saving faith in Jesus by faith alone, through grace alone, that we have eternal life. That's number one. Number two, the priesthood of the believer. You're all priests and sons and daughters of God. God has given you gifts. He's given you talents. He's given you abilities. He wants you to leverage those for his glory, for the good of other people, for the good of the church, for the good of the community. In other words, these guys are great pastors. I love these guys, just in case you didn't know that. And they're not paying me to say that. I love these guys. I love this church. I want this church to do really well. You're the church though. There to lead you and disciple you and and you know, unleash you. But the priest of the believer. Thirdly, and I'll stop with this one. Preaching. I'm all about preaching. I don't know of any really healthy going and growing churches where the preaching isn't good. I just don't know of any. I don't know of any. I I know a lot of churches in and around Denver and Parker. I get to preach in quite a few of them. I'm grateful for that. But I just don't know of any where the preaching isn't pretty stinking good. Because preaching drives us. It's the exposition of the Bible. Sola Scriptura. God's Word. We hear from God. This is God's Word to you and to me and what we want. So when these guys preach a good sermon, send them an email. (laughs) Tell them that. And then tell them, keep up the good preaching. Keep up the good preaching. Amen. (laughs) So, <laughs> hopefully, most of them are great. Yeah, Anonymous. yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> Anonymous. Um, well, before we take a little break and then we come back for, for some Q and A time, many of us would love to learn more about church history, um, but many of us are super busy. Yeah. Where can we start?
1: Uh, the best one volume I can recommend is my former mentor, father figure, and then colleague, Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. The fifth edition, church history volumes don't go into five editions. This one did. Bruce's son, Marshall, who I'm good friends with, we went to seminary together. He and his wife, Susan, and I went to seminary together. We've been friends for over 40 years now. Marshall edited the fifth edition and did a great job. Don't buy the earlier editions. By the 5th edition, because they really updated it. They have all these vignettes of different men and women throughout church history. They added in three or four new chapters. Marshall was an editor in his professional job for years. Uh, Church history in plain language, the 5th edition. That would be one. I already told you about Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. I have two other books I would recommend. Uh, One's on the early church. It's a little bit more technical. Um, It's called Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado. It's what I call Stark on steroids. Hurtado was a better historian than Stark was. It's a great book. I love it because what Hurtado's doing is he's showing how the early church in time eventually displaced paganism. It destroyed their gods. It's a great book. I love it. And then here's a book I would say go to the tattered cover, go to Barnes and Noble, Uh, ask for this for Christmas, because it's a big fatty book. It's pretty expensive. I love it, but it's really big. It's called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Transformed the Modern World. It's by a guy named Tom Holland. Holland is not a Christian. The introduction to Dominion is worth the price of the book. Holland's an Englishman. He's a brilliant historian he did double majors at Cambridge. He's, just, he's written a ton on the ancient world. Here's what he says in the introduction, but it's far more than what I'm going to tell you. He says, when I was a kid growing up, I was fascinated with the Greeks and the Romans. I was fascinated with the story of, you know, uh, the Spartans at Thermopylae and, you know, Caesar and, you know, all this. But he said, here's, here's how Julius Caesar made his claim to fame in Republican Rome. Caesar bragged... I have killed a million Gauls, and I have enslaved a million more. He bragged about that, and that gave him, in the Roman Republic, enormous political and public mojo. In other words, here was a man of utter and complete and total violence and domination, and he's viewed as the best of the best of the best. Well, Holland realizes when he gets to be about the age of 40, I've been studying and writing about these guys all my life. And yet my life has almost nothing to do with them. My life has everything to do with a crucified Jew who hung on a Roman execution rack 2,000 years ago, whose name was Jesus. My life is a product of Jesus of Nazareth, not the Greeks and not the Romans. so he writes this book... To show how Christianity transformed, and it did, the modern world. And it's, he's just got a great eye for detail, but he goes into much more detail in his introduction. When I read the introduction I thought, this is worth the price of the book alone. Hmm. But of the four I would say make that fourth. But I'd say Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language, Starks, Rise of Christianity, I really like Hurtado's Destroyer awesome. of the Gods. It's a really good book. That's good.
0: And, and, and if someone's like, what about the audio book? Um, oh. Christ, uh, church History in Plain English does an amazing job on the audio. So good. there you go. Well, Dr. Wenig, that was awesome. I'm fired up for some church history right now. Um, yeah, we're going to open it up for some Q&A. So if you do have a question, why don't you make your way up here so we can get it into the microphone for all our people who are going to listen via podcast. Here it is, Caleb. Yeah, so um, with, uh, I guess, missions specifically, was uh, early on the Reformation, it seems, more like a internal to Western Europe? When did they catch on to a global missions idea, if ever? Was that a priority even to start, or what did that look like?
1: Is it, it's Caleb? Caleb, that's a great question. Thanks. Most of the reformers were so caught up with simply trying to survive and promote their own internal reformations that the idea of what you and I today would call cross-cultural or global missions was not on their radar. Uh, The one person that was an exception to this was John Calvin in Geneva, and Calvin trained up. Lots and lots of men, and then eventually men and women. And he sent them back into his native France to evangelize French Roman Catholics. That's where he came from. That was his native land because he wanted them to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And they were very, very, very effective at doing that. And they created this huge group of French Protestants who eventually became known as Huguenots. So Calvin's mission back to France was very effective. Secondly, he did have a mission that eventually he and his successors sent overseas to the Indians of South America. There's still questions about how effective that was. Protestant missions, in terms of what you and I are talking about in terms of this question, really get started though in the next century, the 17th century, with the Moravians, and especially the main Moravian leader, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf was a very, yeah, Zinsen who? Yeah. Zinsen what? Yeah. Sounds like a place you go for coffee and bagels. Yeah, well, Zinzendorf was this very rich German count who had his own estate, and he trained up all these Moravians, and he sent them out, across the oceans to evangelize all kinds of different groups, including Jews, including Native Americans, and Moravian missionaries. They were kind of the vanguard of what you and I today would call Protestant missions. And then you probably know this. By the 18th century, you had William Carey come along. And Carey is the father of the modern Protestant mission movement, which got huge mojo in the 19th century. And then, you know, Hudson Taylor and a lot of different people. So that by... Oh, you know, I think estimates were in 1880, um, like 90% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America, where today, if you come to the early 21st century, the vast majority of Christians today are in South America and Africa. The church is exploding there, and it's declining in the West. So Protestant missions now have a rich and varied history since, I would say, since the 17th century. Good question. Awesome. Lainey? Um,
0: So how would you defend
1: the Christian position
0: when churches like Jehovah's Witness or Mormons say, oh, we're just a reformed version of Christianity?
1: That's a great question. Well, I think one thing I would do, and I try to love on them as much as I possibly could, and I would say, number one, can you tell me what you mean by reformed Christianity? And I would want to hear what they have to say well, if they could quote the solas and they could say, hey, we think that we're saved by faith through Jesus alone, that that's how we're saved, I'd say, well, well, welcome to the family. But you probably know this, and I know this in my interaction, and I haven't done a lot of interaction with Jehovah's Witnesses or or Mormons in probably the last 20 years, but I did before that. That's not what they believe. They believe you basically got to work to gain your salvation. I mean, I This was both funny and sad. I used to own a small house over in Englewood when I was in seminary and then when I was in grad school. And sometimes on Saturdays in the summer, it'd be 95 degrees out. And these Jehovah's Witnesses would canvas our neighborhood. And they, I remember this, they'd come to my door and it's 95 degrees out and they're all dressed up. I mean, I'm there in my shorts and a t-shirt, you know, in my flip-flops trying to stay cool. And they're all dressed up. And they'd say, well, we're here to talk about the kingdom of God. And i say, oh, I'm really into the kingdom of God. Well, that shocked them, you know. But I'd invite them in. And I'd talk to them, and, and I'd try to throw them a little bit off balance. And I'd say, okay, well, tell me about what you mean by the kingdom of God. And it was usually about, well, you have to sign on with Jehovah, and you've got to do what he wants you to do, and like what we're doing. We're going out and doing this. And, and I'd kind of tongue-in-cheek tell them, Well, you know, I was really into drugs and sex and rock and roll, and then I accepted Jesus, and then I had my seventh birthday, or something like that, you know, just to throw them off. And they'd kind of like, go, what? (laughs) And and then I'd share my testimony. I'd say, no, I really, I didn't grow up in the church, and I wasn't like totally out of control, but I was a pagan. I was one of the wicked of Psalm 1. And then I met Christ my freshman year of college, and he saved me. I... I didn't walk an aisle. I didn't pray a prayer. I kind of crossed from unbelief to belief, and I knew I was saved. I think Jesus saved me right then. And eventually, I got baptized. And I said, you know, now I'm, you know, in grad school, and I'm a pastor, and this and that. And I felt bad for them in the sense that they felt they had to be doing this to make sure that they were going to get in the kingdom of God. On the other hand, and I mean this sincerely. I've always been a little bit challenged and convicted by them because they were out there willing to do that in the hot July sun. And I'm thinking, I really care about our neighbors in our neighborhood. I really do. I pray for them almost every day. And we have, these, we have a great neighborhood. We all get along really well. We have these really good block parties. There are some other Christians in our neighborhood, but there are people who are not Christian. And I pray for them. But I'm wondering, would I be so bold to go down to their house and say, Greg... You and Denise, you guys need to come to know Jesus. Your lives are really screwed up. Your marriage is really screwed up. I'm telling you this out of love. They'd probably say, get the heck out of here. But at least I would say, you guys need to place your faith in Christ. I haven't done that. At the moment, I don't think I'm going to do that. But I admire the boldness of those folks from the J-Dubs and the Mormons. I admire their boldness. And I think, Lord, give me more boldness like that.
0: on down, Arlen.
1: It was interesting hearing the 10% of the Roman Empire being Christians. And so throughout
0: church history, what has that metric looked like through when Christianity was part of the culture versus not part of the culture? And what does it look like in different parts of the world now where it's part of the culture, where it's not part of the culture? And you may have to start by
1: qualifying Your definition of what a Christian is before responding. Um, That's an incredibly significant question. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) I I can tell you that if you read Stark's book, he lays out all these metrics for you. And so what he does is he takes all of his knowledge that he did with Mormons and Moonies. Two contemporary religious movements that really grew in the 20th century that he did a ton of sociological research on. And he takes those methods and then he applies them to the early church in the first few centuries. Now, methodologically, that raises a lot of questions. Is that a legitimate transfer from the 20th century back to the 1st and 2nd centuries, 3rd centuries. Having said that, let's just say for the sake of argument, we say, okay, fair enough. He lays out the metrics of that, and he shows, here's how much the church grew per decade to get to 6 million people by 300. And he doesn't take any of the numbers in the book of Acts seriously. He says, ah, they were just, you know, rounding numbers up. I don't know if it's 10%. Or if it's 8% or it's 5%. I, I don't know what that is. I do know that there are many places in the world today where there are Christians, but they're so small and their numbers are so few and their churches are so marginalized, they have almost no cultural influence. And then there are other places where Christianity just seems to be exploding and taking over, like huge parts of Africa, huge parts of Central and South America. I mean, there are parts of North America where the church is doing really well. I don't think overall it is, but there are parts and places where it's doing really, really well. So I don't know what the numbers are. I would say this, though. If, if there are 335 million Americans, uh, according to the latest statistic I read, and they were trying to do this kind of on the low end, somewhere between 40 and 50 million Americans still claims some kind of visible, verbal connection to our movement of evangelicalism. Hmm. Well, if there's 40 or 50 million of us, and let's say there's another 50 million Roman Catholics, let's say that gets us up around 100 million, that's a third of the country that in one way or another is affiliated in a pretty direct way with Christianity. You still have a lot of cultural mojo there. Now, don't hear me. I think we have a lot of problems in our country. I think there are a lot, of, a lot of issues that we're all wrestling with. And I'm concerned. I'm not going to lie about it. But I think there, Christianity still has an influence on in our culture. But I don't know what your number is. That's a great question. So I would say read Stark and see what you think.
0: That's a great answer for not having an answer. Yeah, I, I and a shout out to the Moonies.
1: <laughs> you know Rick's history with the Moonies? I didn't, a really. a different story for a different time. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's a story for lunch. Okay, yeah, it's yeah. a good
0: one. Um, uh, <laughs> one of the things I was surprised about when I was a student in your class was how much God used the heretics of church history and then in the forming of the different creeds. We want to speak to Pelagius and Arian and, and all those and, and why those are significant moments for our faith.
1: Well, let's give heretics their due diligence. They're trying to figure things out. They usually understep or overstep in trying to figure things out in terms of their doctrine of God or their relate the relationship of God to creation or something like that. So what you have to do is say heretics in some ways are the facilitators of the development of Christian orthodoxy. In other words, we're trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false in terms of theology, our view of God and how he operates in the world. Well, heretics, like I said, they either go the wrong direction or they don't go far enough. So let's let's talk about um, the Apostles' Creed, which we recited. Uh, The Apostles' Creed was, we have copies of it from about mid-2nd century, so roughly 150 AD. And I love that creed, and we recite that creed. But that creed was written by the early church church, in response to what we call the Gnostic heresy. Gnosticism was this really weird, strange, metaphysical, religious movement that had all kinds of different expressions. Nobody's ever been able to really get their arms around it. But essentially what Gnosticism was, was a belief in dualism. And what we mean by dualism is the spiritual realm is really good, the material realm is really bad. All of sin and evil reside over here in the material realm. In the spiritual realm, things are good because that's where God, or what they called the gods or the emanations from this this one true God in eternity past came from. Well, Henry Chadwick who was the author of the Penguin Early Church volume in the Penguin History of the Church. He wrote the volume on the early church. He said Gnosticism was the greatest threat to the early church. The church had to confront this because what the church recognized was Gnosticism was teaching people, if you just live over here in the spiritual realm, you'll be okay, but anything you do over here, like anything physical, like sexuality, that's evil, that's wrong. Well, what the Gnostics were trying to do, and you you want to give them credit, they were trying to solve this problem. It's the greatest challenge intellectually to Christianity. If God is all powerful and God is all good, why is there so much evil in the world? Well, you can come up with some answers to that question. None of them really are emotionally satisfying. I still think that's the greatest challenge to to Christianity. God's all powerful and God's all good. Why is there so much evil? Well, what they were doing is they're saying, oh, we got an answer to that. Evil resides over here in the material realm because this God from eons past created all these eons of himself. And then the last eon was what they called the Demiurge, which was the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah. And he's the one that created all this bad stuff because he created material reality. Well, the church looks at this and it says... This is nuts. This is craziness. What we have to do is we've got to organize and formulate a response to this. And so, what they did was they came up with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, earth, material realm. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin. Have you had children? Yeah, you know what happens when you have kids. you got stuff all over the place, okay? It's called material reality, and it's messy, isn't it? Yeah, we don't need to go any more than that, TMI already. Okay, but it's material. Jesus was born of a woman, the Virgin Mary. In other words, physical. Jesus was crucified to a Roman execution wreck. He was buried and then... Rose from the dead physically. In other words, what the church is doing is it's saying we're going to affirm material reality because we have a material faith from a God who's spiritual but loves the material and entered into it in Christ in order to affect our salvation. So that's an example of where heretics can help form or help the church form orthodoxy. Or let's talk about Pelagius really quickly. Pelagius was a British monk who lived in the late fourth century, and he was all about moral reform. Who's against moral reform? You're not, I'm not, he wasn't. But what Pelagius started to do was he started to communicate that you don't really have a sin nature, that when you grow up at certain points along the way, you're going to choose to be good or choose to be bad. It's all about your choice. Well, he's confronted by I think the greatest mind in the history of Christianity, Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine realizes, number one, this isn't biblical, and number two, it's not true to reality. And so Augustine confronts Pelagius and basically develops his own anthropology, his own haemardiology, doctrine of sin, and his own soteriology. And his anthropology is this, that you and I are made in the image of God. When God looks at you, he looks down at you from heaven, and he sees something of himself in you, and he's happy about that. Same with Will. He says, there's something about me in Will. So that's the image of God. And that's really good. But in the fall, Genesis chapter 3, poison blood entered our veins. We are the descendants of Adam and Eve. In other words, we sin because it's our nature to sin. How many of you in here have had a two-year-old? What's the first word they learn? No. No. Who do you think you are as my dad to tell me no? No, you're not. not, You didn't teach them that. You're trying to teach them to be cooperative and nice and sweet. And they're saying no. Because it's their nature to do that. Just like it's my nature and your nature. So Augustine looks at that and he says, you're not good. You're sinful by nature. And therefore, you need to be redeemed by a savior who's sinless. And so then he develops out soteriology, basically justification by faith through grace alone. So Pelagius, and Pelagius kind of gets bad press sometimes, but he was kind of going off the rails, I think, in some ways. And Augustine has to correct that, lest the church go off the rails. And later on in the Middle Ages, a lot of people became semi-Pelagians. And Luther and the Reformers... They, they, they attack that like crazy because they realize that leads people astray. So heretics are the stepchildren of the church yeah. that help the church fight for, develop, and maintain orthodoxy.
0: Yeah, that's good. Come on up, Bethany. So I just uh, listened to a book about St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. So how would you compare, contrast the people trying to reform inside the church to Martin Luther who kind of went completely outside of it? Do you think it was from the time because it got spread so quickly they had to squash him and make it so intense? Or do you think he could have tried to do it more internally?
1: Um, Well, let me talk about Francis for a moment. Francis was a great person in a lot of ways. But there were other movements of his time that got squashed by the church. For whatever reason, the papacy embraced Francis and the Franciscans. And so they became part of the movement of friars along with the Dominicans. But there was an evangelical group called the Waldensians, and the church crushed them. Crushed them. And then there was a heretical group over here called the uh, Cathari, the Albigensians. The church crushed them too. So Francis gets embraced. Luther comes along. He doesn't want to split the church originally. That's not his intent. But after the Diet of Leipzig, he realizes, I I can't go back to that anymore. And then, taking his personality, once he gets to the Diet of Worms, April of 1521, I mean, his courage is almost unimaginable. He's standing before the worldly powers of his day, the Holy Roman Emperor, all the leaders, the churchmen, of his day, and he stands there and he says, unless I'm convinced by you know conscience or scripture, I cannot and I will not do otherwise. Here I stand, God help me, amen. I mean, just unbelievable courage. But given his personality, there's no way he's going back. So at that point, split takes place. So could could he have done it otherwise? My own interpretation of Luther is no, no. Yeah. I mean, there have been innumerable attempts over the last 500 years between Catholics and Protestants to try to hammer these things out. They were doing that in the 16th century. Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, went to a couple of conferences with some Roman Catholics to try to hammer things out, and they made some progress, but they always got stuck on some key issues because the way Roman Catholics are interpreting these things And the way Protestants are interpreting these things are really different. For example, like I said, if you're a Roman Catholic, you are saying the Pope is the head of the church. I admire Roman Catholicism. I really, really do. I'm never going to say that. I'm never going to say that. I'm not going to sign off on transubstantiation. I'm not going to sign off on the veneration of Mary. I don't believe in purgatory. And those, those are fundamental Roman Catholic doctrines. So I guess, at least for the time being, we're stuck with our divide. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have fellowship or get along with each other. Like I said, I, I have a friend, his name is Doug Grandin, and I'll just give you a real quick biography. <laughs> He's a really fervent evangelical who was an evangelical free pastor, and he decided, yeah, we don't have enough liturgy here. So then he becomes an Anglican, Church of England. He becomes an evangelical Anglican. And then he starts reading John Henry Newman, the great Roman Catholic theologian of the 19th century. And he realizes, oh no, Henry VIII and these guys really screwed this up. So he becomes a Roman Catholic. Well, I didn't know this until I met him. He's he's married with five kids. They have a special dispensation in the Roman Catholic Church that they shoehorned him into. He's a priest in the Roman Catholic Church with a wife and five kids. Now he's a believer. I mean, so we get together for lunch and, you know, he, he keeps giving me all these books. Well, Scott, we really aren't that different from you. I go, uh, come on, you know what I believe. You used to believe it. Yeah, but, you know. So, I mean, even with a guy like that, and he's a great guy. You would love him. He's a really good guy. Lo- loves Jesus, loves his wife, loves his parish. Yeah, I'm not going to his parish. <laughs> I'm going to Redemption Park. Yeah.
0: Got a couple more minutes, Cassie.
1: Do you feel like
0: there were any negatives of the Reformation and maybe, like, um, the sacraments or things that the Protestants maybe have lost
1: reverence for or don't do as well? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I love the Reformation and I'm in the Protestant tradition. But the, number one, and Mark and I were talking about this right before we got started. Number one, the Reformation as a movement, once it really got going, was a very destructive movement. And what I mean by that is, uh, late medieval Catholicism was a very visual religion with statues and stained-glass windows and and icons, you know, all over the place. And Protestants went in and they just destroyed all that because they thought it was idolatry. So like they, they would just rampage parish churches. Um, um, they would rampage cathedrals. Um, they overthrew monasteries like in, in England Thomas Cromwell, who was Henry VIII's right-hand man, he and Henry closed down all the monasteries in 1536 and 1537. They closed down like hundreds of monasteries. And they did that for two reasons. Cromwell did it partly because he wanted to please the king and partly because he was a Protestant who was growing in his Protestantism and he didn't like monasticism. They also did it, though, because they could enrich the laity and the royal coffers by selling off all these lands to the nobility. So, at that point, and and Henry VIII was still doctrinally a Catholic, but you look at stuff like that and you're thinking, yeah, Protestantism was pretty destructive, really was. Secondly, this was not just Protestantism. This was Protestantism and Catholicism, but In the late 16th century on into the 17th century, you enter in European history into what we call the era of the wars of religion. Those were all really bad without any value. They were enormously destructive. Um, One of those, the Thirty Years' War went from 1618 to 1648, and it was both political and religious. It was both and. Well, a lot of historians think that Germany was far more ruined by the Thirty Years' War than by World War II. And if you've ever seen film clips of, like, all these bombed-out German cities in 1945, you're thinking, how could it be worse than this? But a lot of historians say the Thirty Years' War was far more destructive than that. So you've got the wars of religion in the 16th and 17th century, and they're all bad. None of those are good. Just lots of loss of human life, lots of suffering— Just, just horrible things. So, human beings can do really bad things in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. So, are there downsides to the Protestant Reformation? Yeah, there are.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Winning, for your time, for your wisdom, for your nerdiness that that we (laughs) talked about earlier. Let's give it up for Dr. (laughs) Winning. We have to we have to get our kids out of that room in like three minutes. So I'm going to pray real quick and let's go grab those kids. Oh Lord, we thank you that, that we don't we don't come um, to you as a church in, in a vacuum, God, but, but we come as a part of a, a heritage, one with um, some 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 amazing history and and also some warts, God. And so Lord, we 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 do want to learn. From our heritage and our history, God, and we and we want to continue on the 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 great Christian faith, God. So, Lord, help us to do that. Um, Lord, we, we love you. Help us to to be a a, a church that that continues um, that continues advancing your kingdom into the next generation, God. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.